Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the best of Tennis Channel Inside In, part two on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're highlighting some of the best moments covering the game during the 2023 season, and this episode features several current and recently retired players who drop some serious insight and knowledge on the podcast. First up, it's Riley Opelka, the big man with a serious serve and a serious art collection. Opelka made his broadcasting debut for TC this past spring, and he shared several opinions on players like Holger Runa, Novak Djokovic, and his current generation of American tennis players. And Opelka discusses why he became such a passionate fan of fashion and art as well. Here he is now on the best of Inside In. Tennis is constantly evolving. Um, Alcaraz brought back, you know, tennis got super linear, Mm -hmm. meaning like when Rafa first came on, the, the net clearance balls were clearing the net by a lot. Yeah. And same with Roger, to be honest. He's got a lot of RPMs on his forehands. He saw a lot of net clearance. But mm-hmm. uh, the Medvedev, Zverev, like the new kind of um, crop of guys, myself included, we play a lot more linear. And and Rublev, you know, look at all these guys. But Alcaraz has really kind of brought back the, you know, his forehand is clearing the net by a lot. His backhand clears the net by a lot. He's brought back kind of that element of, mixing up heights and spins and speeds and just doing it all. So when you see that, like someone in your player perspective, like putting the player head on, is that exciting? Like, wow, this is different? Or is that like scary in a way or both? No, it's not scary. It's just, it is what it is. Part of it's, um, you know, the game changes, technology changes, balls change, courts change, but that's kind of what it is. Casper Ruud is the same. He plays super, uh, he doesn't play so linear. Like everyone was, the game had gotten so linear for a time there. And now, um, yeah, there's so many. It's interesting just kind of how all these tendencies come out. Most guys now have such a bunty, flat backhand, for mm-hmm. example. That wasn't, you know, the case not too long ago. Guys were using a lot of spin and topspin on it. Now everyone's got this kind of Kyrgios esque, bunty, flat, Medvedev y mm-hmm. backhand. I think, uh, I mean, you're fitting right into the analysis role, but I do agree with a lot of that in the sense that you are right there like your fingers on the pulse you're on yeah. tour it's your job to study them and put the time in uh, and, and i was doing some research studying up on everything since the last time we talked and i saw an article where they described you as radically honest and i i don't know if it was meant in in jest and fun but like do you think that's a fair assessment or just an honest guy to a fault sometimes yeah maybe um yeah i guess so i if i look at it in a lot of ways like a lot of the world and especially mm-hmm. people that work in media, especially tennis media, they're yeah. incredibly radical. Yeah. They're so polary, polarizing, very extreme. You know, you really, they really want, in tennis people aren't so open to other opinions. I'm not looking to be controversial. That's mm-hmm. just my genuine view on, on a lot of things. And I find it so crazy that a lot of my takes are super like, and what's viewed as like, uh, like you kind of said, um, I think that was a compliment actually yeah, from what, how I think it was yeah. a nice way, a mild way to put it. Cause some of the things that I see of other, that other people say about me is 
much more well, I think, harsh than that. Yeah, it's very radical. I think having ideas is, I mean, it always was a good thing, and maybe it is. Tennis is not used to new ideas and change. And I found it interesting that your crop of guys coming up have ideas. I mean, like Tiafo said, I would like to, you know, see noise. Pagula with the trash talk debate earlier. And Tommy Paul even a couple of years ago told me that he doesn't like how everyone has to be quiet at all times. It makes the sport look soft. Totally. And it's not like you have to agree with that, but I do think having a second opinion or a contrarian opinion should be fine. Of course. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree. And, and I think just nowadays, if you kind of, in the tennis media, if you aren't on the same agendas, what it really is, you, they don't accept you. Mm. Um, it's a very old school mentality. They, they've tried to evolve and become more uh, modern, I think, but mm -hmm. it, I think it's actually been the opposite. I think it's, it's very uh, polarizing, very radical. And, there's certain things, there's total, there's so much, I guess, there's so many biased people in media and tennis and journalism that is unfair. I mean, yeah. it's unfair. Even, you know, I, people call things out that they don't even realize, like Holger Rune, for example. Right. Uh, a lot of the players like the, like, it's funny how people <laughs> will rip him uh, in, in media. He's 19 years old and he's top eight in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a big believer that a lot of people's, weaknesses are so like closely intertwined with their strengths yeah um holger is a, a very nice guy off the court most players would agree with that he's super nice in the locker room very friendly on court you kind of do what you got to do I'm, if i were holger i would not i'd make sure <laughs> for example i wouldn't listen to a single thing mm -hmm. the media says i'm mm -hmm. 19 years old i'm one of the best tennis players yeah. on the planet yeah and you can look at history of athletes and maybe this is where tennis skewers away where what got them to the dance is who they are so if you change that it could lose that and I, and then like i was just gonna you brought up holger it's a great point the stuff with stan like it was a perfect encapsulation to me of they had it they had a moment on the court yeah. they're practicing together a couple weeks later like yeah. it's just heated athleticism that's how it is yeah, yeah. and and the one thing i even appre appreciate a lot about stan is like it just kind of shows you the guy Stan is. He's a straight mm -hmm. up guy. He's not gonna. Yeah. I I always have a problem with people when they when they act one way <laughs> to you and then yeah. they do something else behind your back. Right. right. That's that's kind of how the world is. Mm -hmm. I totally respect Stan saying you know discussing with him at the net and and then I even respect him more that they're practicing. That's just people don't realize there's there's a life behind the scenes on outside the lines that you see. And Novak is like the easy example. If yeah. Novak had changed. People like criticizing <laughs> Novak, you know, if you change Novak's mindset and his, like he's applied those concepts that he has on life, yeah. like him having the courage to just take a stance, mm -hmm. not play both sides of the coin like a lot of his peers do, mm -hmm. and, and to just face things like head on yeah. is the reason why he is undisputed the greatest tennis player that's ever lived. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to argue even by the metrics, like what he's done. And that's why I like about the current generation of American tennis, you know, you have, I'm a server. Tommy is a all around all court player. Foe is a all court player with like tons of great trick shots and drop shots. Fritz is just a pure, like, you know, gunman out there. Mm -hmm. It's just fire, fire, fire. There's so many different styles. It's really exciting to see in your generation, just getting going to reaching those peak years coming up. So it's going to be fun. And it is great that it's not like built in a factory. Like everyone can play different. I want to get to some of the personal stuff because you're, you know, the as self-described tallest collector of art in the world and youngest maybe. Was that 
because I remember I was watching that press conference. I think you were in like Russia mm-hmm. and it was like, I'm going to Belgium. I can't wait to go. Some of my favorite artists are out there. Yeah. How did that love of art come to be? Was it just, you know, bored on the road looking for interest to get by and get through the grind of tour life? Yeah, totally. It was just the boredom of, you know, the, everyone thinks there's this reality of like this glorious life in tennis. They see an occasional influencers post at a you know on a pj and Mm -hmm. heading to monte carlo at the country club that's like that's just that that that's one week of the year Mm -hmm. you know go show where the guys are right now in madrid Mm -hmm. they're staying at a disgusting hotel it (laughs) smells like sewage that's why all of them checked out (laughs) and the fact is that's more common and more likely to happen than the monte carlo week and um so there is a sense of i i didn't want to be in those tournament hotels and you know, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner on site. And that was never me. And it was actually, it was at first and I hated it. I didn't like my job. Um, so yeah, I found so much enjoyment and so much time in museums looking at art and, um, learning about art. And then also, I mean, I'm not McEnroe's a legend of, uh, he's an art, he's got a crazy, crazy collection. People don't realize. And say, so does Venus Williams. Venus Williams is like a major collector. Mm -hmm. She's got, I'm, I'm by no means the first, but, uh, I, I love it. How uh, how's the group text been after Tiafoe's performance in the celebrity game? Uh, I mean, <laughs> was it good? <laughs> there wasn't. I mean, there's no. It's yeah. horrible basketball. <laughs> he really, was, is. Yeah. like me and Tommy are good. Yeah, like, actually good. We, and and <laughs> I, I, it's funny because like <laughs> Foe takes it so well. He's such a great yeah, yeah. jokester. Luckily, I don't want to rip on him because he's just he's the funniest guy <laughs> you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. He's the nicest guy you'll ever meet, but he is. God yeah. awful at basketball. Yeah, He's was, the worst the basketball best. player probably in the top hundred on ATP. <laughs> that's wow. I'd have to get the list out. That's that's bold. I would. Yeah, I don't. You know, one on one, man. Do you feel like tennis has opened up some doors for you to not only? I mean, I know that there's the grind of tour life, but you mentioned the art collection, going to Paris Fashion Week, meeting a guy like Machine Gun Kelly. I saw that post. As I well. knew him before then. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I met Kelly yeah. in like 2018. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. Fashion Week was cool in Paris. I went in Milan for mm-hmm. the Prada show. Yeah. Um, again, even then, like, that just shows you how lame, like, tennis <laughs> media is. You realize how stupid some of these people look saying, like, <laughs> like they're, like, making fun of me all the time for how I look and how I'm dressed. But it's like, uh, it's I'm literally wearing Prada. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, if you're going to rip Prada. Well, some of like, the sponsorships are going high end. Like, I saw Felix with uh, the new sponsor. Is that Dior he's on now? Is it, he's so smooth. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's just, like, a cool... He could wear anything and it looks cool. The high-end you know? stuff is kind of nice, though, that it's kind of coming into the tennis realm, like the you yeah. know, sponsorships there. Emma's got a few I'm, as well. So. Yeah, same with Emma. I mean, but look at Felix and Emma. They'd be like poster child for any major fashion house. What do they not look super cool in, <laughs> no, you know? I know. It's... I. I the biggest thing when I take away, like, your interest and your outside thing is it's okay to just go in a different direction. Like, yeah. Whether or not it's for somebody, it doesn't have to be. Like, it's just your own, you know, your own lane. Yeah, totally. And the thing is with fashion, too, I love that. I I like the freedom of not having, like, you know, uh, just being able to go to a ton of different shows. You're a great artist. A lot of the great creative directors are artists. Like, one of my favorite creative directors ever is a a guy named Chris Van Asha. And he was creative director of Dior for 11 or 12 years. And then creative director of uh, Berluti. And I'm, I consider myself somewhat of a middle America kid. I'm from, I was born in Michigan. Mm-hmm. The town I grew up in, in North Florida is like kind of out in the boonies. Like yeah. Palm Coast is 
not known for its culture of any by any means. Um, it's way out. Way, it's, it's like w- Italians, like oh, we're going to Olive Garden tonight. One of those. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, that's like that yeah. was one of the first restaurants in yeah. Palm Coast, like yeah. one of the first chain restaurants. It was literally like Olive Garden. Yeah, and um, like what kids did there on weekends was like go to Walmart. <laughs> like <Okay>. that was <laughs> yeah. Um, and for Chris Van Asha when I because fashion was before art for me, I was watching i was streaming his last runway show at dior this was probably in 18 um and you know i always think it it must take a really good artist a special person to get a middle america kid on his (laughs) phone making an effort waking setting an alarm at a different time to go stream his runway show and i followed him to berluti um he's like he's just an example of one of my favorites i I love raf simmons who's currently the creative director of, of prada and then what was crazy about it all was how I didn't, it makes sense, but it all tied back into Belgium. Mm-hmm. Antwerp, the most amount of art collectors per square kilometer is wow. in Belgium. Chris Van Asha is from um, Belgium, Antwerp to be yeah. exact. Raf Simmons is from there. Dries Van Noten is from there. Margiela is from there. You have all these legendary like fashion creative directors from Belgium, from Antwerp to be exact, which is this small town. And then I realized, wow, it makes so much sense that because they, they pull all their inspo from art. Oh wow! And, and that's where all the art is. It's inter- it, there's something ironic in the fact that you had what your worst experience at Antwerp on a, t- in a tennis tournament, but you found <laughs> it's yeah. still number one worst. Hands down, the worst tournament on tour. Wow. Shouldn't should <laughs> it could it could barely pass as a challenger. Well, at least there was something positive in there. I'll always go back. <laughs> I'll go back. I'm yeah. always going to be there just because yeah. of Tim Van Laar. It's my it's favorite. Perfect. He's never doesn't every time he's usually got a great show. Every time he's, I, I I collect pretty much all of his artists. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm somewhat biased, yeah. but I found Tim before he found me. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, you're like you discovered a band that kind of blew up. Yeah. Of. This is yeah. not one bit transactional. Yeah. This yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It's really it. Wow. It was super authentic. I discovered Tim. <laughs> um, he awesome. loves tennis. He knew of me, but yeah. I just I found Renus Vandeveld. That was my yeah. first email to Tim. Yeah. I inquired about. It. He did a color pencil drawing of a tennis court that I loved. Wow. And it, he re- responded to me saying, it's sold. I don't have the, like, it's gone. But he yeah, proposed yeah. me another one. And then how it came full circle, fast forward, we had our partnership, our deal. I carried the pink bag on court. I got fined for it. <laughs> yeah. And he reimbursed me in the fine. And he gave me that drawing. Wow. And I, I was like, I thought you said it's sold. And he's like, yeah, I bought it. <laughs> wow. Now we go to a clip from the first gold medalist to appear on this podcast, Monica Puig. The Puerto Rican joined Inside In to discuss that Cinderella gold medal run in 2016, what her country means to her, and how her life changed forever after the Olympics. It's Monica Puig on the best of Tennis Channel Inside In. Did you have any real sporting idols? I mean, I know Puerto Rico has a rich athletic history. I, you know, you look at the names, like current day, even with like Frankie Lindor and the Almore brothers before him, and Felix Trinidad, the boxer. You know, there aren't that many women on that list. So you were kind of one of the first to kind of get mainstream appeal there. Did you have idols that you looked up to? Well, I mean, in the tennis world, I definitely did. I I grew up watching Serena and Venus Williams. Um, I had posters of Jennifer Capriati, Monica Seles on my walls growing up. Um, You know, I lived in Miami. So when it was called the, uh, you know, the Sony Erickson Open and all of these things, I was just very interested in, Mm -hmm. in being on those courts. And one of the coolest memories that I have was actually going to um, the Miami Open tournament with my dad many times watching the qualifying and watching the main draw and 
telling my dad, you know, one day I'm going to be on <laughs> these practice courts and I'm going to be practicing right here where all these girls are. Yeah. And fast forward, you know, 15 years later or so, my dad is watching me practice and he's right there in the stands <laughs> watching me on those same courts. So it's really cool just to see how things That's have amazing. have moved, moved forward pretty much. So the first photo I want to go to, this is, I think, 2012 Australian Open. I think this is your, if we look at the monitor here, I think this is you in the 2012 Australian Open. A lifetime ago. Jesus. Trying to, trying to, I mean, that's that's a determined person. They're trying to make their way up the tour. And what I remembered in kind of studying your upbringing, uprising, was it wasn't this, like, smooth sailing, like everybody just keeps winning and everyone wants to be like Carlos Alcaraz and just ride all the way to the top. But in your case, there was some checkpoints, but also some adversity. How did you feel adjusting to the pro game for the first time? It was really tough because I always saw myself as like the last one to get to everything. So I was the last one to kind of make it from the junior days up to where I was, the last one to kind of show up for everything. So um, it took me a little bit of time. It was, you know, a big adjustment for me. However, um, you know, once I did finally understand and, and I understood that, you know, no, um, no path to success is alike. So I had to understand that, kind of be patient with myself. But, um, yeah, my junior career ended on a high in pretty much the last six or seven months that yeah. I was a junior. And it kind of clicked and made sense for me. And the same thing happened in the pros where, you know, struggling to make it inside the top 100 for so long. And all of a sudden it just, bam, it just happened. Did you feel like you were, I guess, was there camaraderie on the WTA? It seems like yeah. you made some good friends. I know you and Bethany Maddox-Sands were always, you know, thick as thieves on Twitter, at least. But oh, yeah. The no. locker room seemed like it was a good place for your generation coming up. Absolutely. And I felt like it was kind of, uh, it pushed us to kind of strive for, um, to be better than than mm -hmm. the other one, I know Svitolina and mm -hmm. Carolyn Garcia and, and that type of generation that played with me in juniors, mm -hmm. they had a lot of success very early on. And I wanted to be there. Obviously, you know, it took me more time and it was a little bit tougher, but I eventually got there and that was a cool thing. Um, so it was kind of like that, that, you know, you see somebody's doing well, that pushes you to work a little bit harder, right. be a little bit better. And that was what I feel like our generation definitely did well more with monica puig here on tennis channel inside in well all roads in your story lead to the rio olympics in 2016 now did you have any idea going in that no. this was no because no. <laughs> i saw the post where you were like off to a great start this like winning one match yeah. meant so much to you which is so cool but then to end the gold medal is just storybook stuff when did i guess that's a better way. When did it start to feel like a real possibility? Because you went through some of the best WTA players in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, I, honestly, I was just happy to be there. Qualifying for the Olympics was something that I didn't even know I had done until it somebody actually told me. <laughs> so I needed to make the third round of the French Open that year. And I was unaware. My team knew kept it quiet and then wow. I ended up um beating Julia Gerges wow. I think it was like seven five in the third I remember that match I had no idea that that match. was so you didn't know the stakes until after the match was over because if I remember no correctly idea. you had a pretty emotional reaction just to notch yeah. that win wow I think it w the the reaction was just being three hours on <laughs> yeah. court wow. the game before the match ended the supervisor came and told the chair umpire we are going to suspend yeah. to darkness after this game, no matter what happens. Mm. Wow. So I was like, okay, Monica, you need to get your butt in gear because I do not want to come back and have to do <laughs> yeah. this whole 
thing because that's very challenging. But then when I got off the court, my team told me, like, did you know that this was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks guys for keeping it quiet because if not, I would have been a nervous wreck. Wow. So it was great. But yeah, getting to the Olympics was surreal. I wanted to enjoy the moment and kind of um, live that experience because I've heard so many stories of what the Olympics could be. Um, so very happy to be there. Obviously very nervous before my debut. I just wanted to you know, start on the right foot. Yeah. And I'd been playing well that year. I was uh, 34 in the world, 37 or 34. Um, so good results, uh, finals of Sydney, uh, you know, semifinals in Eastbourne and a couple of other tournaments I was doing pretty well. But then when I beat Garbine uh, mm -hmm. in the third round, that's when I was like, okay, I think I need to start reevaluating my priorities <laughs> yeah. here because I am playing too well to not give myself or be lenient with myself and say, yeah. hey, you do have a chance. Right. Um, you know, I was always kind of counting myself out until that point. It's It was an impressive run because you beat Garbini, Kvitova, and then Kerber in the final round. You're up 5-1 in the third set. Is that the nervous you've ever been in your life? Yeah, well, I actually had a match point at 5-0. Um, and I keep saying this the whole third set, I was singing a song in my head, just kind of, we had a, a playlist within the Puerto Rican Olympic team that, you know, it was all Latin songs, whatever was on in the in the moment that kind of made us feel good. We would listen to that playlist all the time. So it was one of the songs on that playlist. I think it was a Shakira song. Um, and I was just singing that song. So kind of. I was in the zone without yeah. really knowing what was going on and kind of going on autopilot, playing the type of tennis that is very basic. I know what I'm doing. I'm yeah. reacting to everything on the court, but just flowing. I didn't really need to think really hard about things mm -hmm. and kind of bursted that bubble <laughs> when I was match point. I was like, wait a minute, what is going on? And kind of, it, it was a struggle to remember what tennis was supposed to be like i oh. was like how do i play what do i do <laughs> do i even know how to play tennis at this point is it like an out-of-body experience it, it, i mean <laughs> everything shut down oh. for me like i just felt so tight and nervous mm -hmm. and but and in that moment i was like okay i got here mm -hmm. doing something and something was working i just need to kind of do that beating Kerber in the middle of one of the better years in WTA 21st century. Like it was insane. And what I love about the match point reaction is that you haven't even waited for the ball to hit the ground. Like the racket's already up and it's already just It was emotions. insane. I, I think that was like the, the most tense moment because the ball just felt like it was going in slow motion out. And I was like, okay, come on, just like go out because I know I'm like right there. <laughs> it's, right. it's over. But it was really cool because I think she had – Five break points, I had six match points, or vice versa, and it was it was a great moment. That seems like it would be, from the outside, just a life-changing, altering thing. Did it feel just, I mean, I'm sure surreal, probably still feels surreal, but when did you know, okay, like, this changed, like, I'm an Olympic gold medalist for the rest of my life? I don't think, like, it's still real to me that that's the title. I mean, I've heard it several <laughs> times, and, and sometimes it's hard to believe because, you know, um, I wish my career would have extended itself a little bit more to have mm. more opportunity to have better results but um it was really just mm -hmm. a dream come true i remember that night after winning i would wake up every like 30 minutes <laughs> to touch the medal on the nightstand <laughs> because you know sometimes you have these incredible yeah. dreams and something coming true like winning something big and you wake up and you're like okay well i'm, I'm in my bed i'm not where i was dreaming i was so yeah. that's a, that's a bit of a shame but just having the medal there and just being like 
wow, okay, it, yeah. it did happen. And the anthem, I mean, has to be the part where it really sets in. Because yeah. you're still, I would imagine, riding that high from any big match win with the adrenaline going. But when you stop, hear your anthem come on last, it's just got to be Yeah, it was, I I can't listen to the Puerto Rican National (laughs) Anthem without crying anymore because it's just, I mean, it was the first time that any Puerto Rican had ever heard it on on an Olympic podium. Um, So the island was also going crazy. You saw those videos, right? I did, yeah. My agent showed me just after that moment (laughs) right there and he's like, do you have any idea what is going on back home? And I said, no, what's going on? He hands me his phone, he's like, you need to look at yeah. this. Who was the? Who were some of the people that reached out to you? Anybody that made you blush? Like I can't believe this person like just congratulated me. Yeah, I mean it was <laughs> J Lo had wrote a, a, a tweet and yeah. uh, Ricky Martin. Of course, <laughs> we we go way back um, from when I was like 16 years old that we met for the first time and <laughs> just you know all of Puerto Rico. But you know for me it was more about my parents in that moment. Yeah. Um, they were the first people who I tried to call as soon as the match was over because we have seven minutes. B- from when we walk mm-hmm. off the court to getting the medal. So I was trying to change into mm-hmm. my tracksuit and trying to call my parents, but since there's so many people in the stadium, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get a signal, so I was really upset. But, um, yeah, once once I was able to talk to them, that was really the the best moment that I've ever had. When you go talk about this parade, oh, and, I'm, so and I'm fun. thinking about it from the perspective of, just all the young people in the crowd that got to actually see a champion in the flesh. You've got your your mom up there. You've got a lot of people that support you. It, it just it strikes me as the inspirational story because nobody had this example before you. Now when you interact with children, do you get that sense that you're like kind of become the role model, that they have dreams that might not have seemed possible until someone actually did it? Of course, and that's something that, I, you know, I always – hold in my mind uh day to day that I am an example for so mm-hmm. many but not just that but for little kids so my image is something that I always try and and, and maintain and keep it clean and positive because um you know you want to do all the right things so that the future generation can come up and and, and kind of uh, mm-hmm. continue to emulate these good things and and that moment mm-hmm. for me was just incredible seeing how many people were just there and how proud they were and everything that went on and i mean it was it was seems like it was stunning. a good day it seemed was like it was so hard to fit fun. into one day we were we were <laughs> dead by the end of the day and it was yeah. it was uh it was incredible because it was so hot and i was in <laughs> jeans and we were all in like jeans and, yeah. and our shirt was like much heavier material so every time the bus would pass over a tree we were all like oh shade but it was such a beautiful day there in puerto rico it was so hot and it was I mean, it was it was fun. It was a great time. Did you find it a little tougher to get back to the pro tour so fast? Like I know, yeah, everyone would trade the opportunity to win a gold medal. So it sounds like a first world problem. But going back to the grind of a pro tour had to be an adjustment after such an emotional high. Yeah, it was really tough because I mean, a lot of the other athletes um, that are not in tennis uh, said, "Okay, so you're you're gonna take a break after this." I was like, "Well, I have the U.S. <laughs> Open in two and a half weeks, yeah. so no." Um, I did pull out of Cincinnati, which was the next week. And it was important for me to do that um, because this is the biggest win of my career. This is the biggest thing that had ever happened to me. And I needed kind of time to process that, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't enough time. Um, and going back to the U.S. Open after everything that had happened, I was still kind of like in a mm-hmm. mental fog because it just none of it seemed real to right. me. And um, it was it was very challenging.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I don't think anybody in tennis is quite like Andrea Pekovic. And I mean that as a compliment. She's insightful, endearing, and absolutely hilarious anytime she speaks into a microphone. Pekovic also took the broadcasting world by storm in 2023, and she made two appearances on Tennis Channel Inside and to shed light on the game she adores. Listen as she breaks down everything from the origins of her signature dance to serving as a mentor to the next wave of German tennis players. And there is that one Pekovic handshake story as well. The biggest difference was every loss that I had before that break was like an end of the world. Uh, Like the apocalypse (laughs) came over me and just took me away. And after that decision and that choosing of tennis, it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, it's a loss, but this is what I want to do. I chose this. It's like of all the things to get jealous of with Roger Federer, the one that gets me and maybe other tennis players too, is how at the end of his career, it's like five, 10 minutes, he's over a loss. Yeah, <laughs> like there are stories of him after Wimbledon 2019 where he's fine, you know, 20 minutes later. It's like maybe not all the way there, but just to be able to roll off losses. I yeah, just, I, I mean, that's that's probably his biggest <laughs> his biggest strength, yeah. the short term memory. But the thing that I was most taken aback, I saw an interview with him where he said, my biggest strength is that whenever I go with the same mind, with the same mindset and the same feeling onto the court yeah. every time, no matter which round it is. And I was like, Roger, <laughs> I changed my mood just in the warm up five <laughs> yeah. times. What are you talking yeah. about wow. here? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a different guy for sure. He um, is, yes. Was that around the time? I guess a better way to ask it would be when did you. When did that love affair with New York City start? Because now that's like your place to be in America. Yeah, so interestingly enough, it kind of collided with my with the ga- gain of confidence I had in tennis because uh, I'm kind of an anxious person now. I'm an adult and I'm much more confident. Anxious? I was like, <laughs> New York City? <laughs> well, yeah. and exactly. And yeah. the first time I was in New York City, yeah. I was <laughs> I, it was for the U.S. Open. Yeah. It was my first main draw of a slam. And I was just so overwhelmed by the city. Yeah. And I was so anxious and just going out. And like the highest of my <laughs> feelings was to go across the street to get a coffee at Starbucks <laughs> and I was like oh my god I conquered the world <laughs> and then when this when I developed my personality and grew mm-hmm. into myself and then I started having friends there it felt like oh the city that I was so scared of oh now I finally know how to you you know take the train and uh mm-hmm. and just call yeah. a cab and you know yell at the bar t- whatever it is <laughs> what that you do as yeah. a New Yorker and uh, and it was similar with tennis. I needed to always find my footing, oh. but then once I had it, I felt really good about myself. That's good. You <laughs> conquered your fears <laughs> yes, in New York exactly. City. <laughs> so I have to ask: Was the 2010 U.S. Open the origin of the dance, or were you doing that in the practice videos <laughs> and stuff? Because that's where it kind of became mainstream. Yes, Petco dance that everyone has their yeah. take on now, and, it, and I've noticed that it's not always the same. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little different. <laughs> well, I changed enough. Yeah. So, yeah. So the thing was, I had a terrible losing streak before the U.S. Open, and I was so depressed about it. I was because I was playing really well in practice, and I think the reason I was losing in matches was because I started things started clicking for me in practice, and I think I felt that I had made a next. I had 
progress my game to the mm-hmm. next level and I just felt the pressure in the matches to bring it and um and my coach <laughs> told me okay and I played against Nadia Petrova yeah. who was a top seed at the US Open and he told me okay if you win this match and I know you can you have to do something really special <laughs> and at that time the I was playing on Louis Armstrong Stadium I don't know if they still do that at that time you gave them five of your favorite songs and they would play it oh. when you walk out on court and when you win the mm-hmm. match and so I won that match, 7-6 in the third. And I was like, oh, I have to do something. And my coach is looking at me, just like <laughs> hand gesturing, what are you going to do? <laughs> and they played that tune that I had put down. I don't even remember which song it was. And it just came to mind. And then I was stuck with it for the rest of my career. I mean, somehow. that's probably what you're most known for. I don't know if that's how you drew it up. or But hey, that's probably how you're most known with the masses. It was not calculated. And I think that's why I started to change it up because... Um, in the beginning it was super yeah. fun and then people people <laughs> started flocking to my matches to see it but then after a while i would play a bad match and i didn't feel like dancing <laughs> and i just wanted to pack my bags and leave and people were like pet go dance pet go dance and then it was like forced oh smile no. you know oh and that's no. when i started to change it up so it's more spontaneous was it around this time or i guess maybe later that you started to see yourself as a veteran, like where was the time? If Is there one moment? Do you have that clandestine moment when it's like, wow, I'm one of the, not older, but I'm one of the middle of the pack age. I'm not <laughs> a young pup anymore. Well, you know what? Actually, Tennis Channel was the one that oh, made no. me aware of it. I was There was a replay of a match of mine and I played well, I won. And when I won, the commentator, I think, uh, said... And the veteran Andrea Petkovic goes through, and I was like, oh, no. We did it. It's our fault. She has set us up. And I swore to myself I will never call a player a veteran. Yeah, wow. I mean, look, veteran can be good. You don't want to say, like, the old veteran or the wily veteran. That's true. And if anybody knows how to deal with social media and, you know, the occasional troll and haters, it's you. You know, it's just like, hey. Like the Kvitova return, I return her surf comment was one of the funnier yeah. ways to deal with it. Well, you know, I, I, I consider myself yeah. to be the biggest troll on social okay. media. So if you troll a troll, uh, yeah. you're done for. It's like heckling a stand-up comic. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and I guess, you know, the, the author side of things, I wanted to get to that because you wrote that book, uh, Between Glory and Honor, uh, mm-hmm. Lies the Night. Mm-hmm. Tried to read some of it. It's actually in German, so I wasn't yeah. able to read it. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, where did that come from that you wanted to write, write a book, and then also just stay active as a new aspiring journalist? Well, so the thing was, it's actually v- very funny. When I was a, it relates all back to tennis, like everything in my <laughs> life does. When I was a teenager, I didn't have any money, and my family didn't have money to send me on tour with a coach, so I was traveling alone always. And I remember very distinctly when I was 16 years old, Uh, one girl was next to me at lunch with her coach and they were going through her match and he was telling her well a three all you missed a forehand in the net and you should play a little higher margin and I sat there and I was like that is brilliant how can I coach myself so what I started to do is write down narratives of my matches and then with two days of a break to have the emotions subside, wow. I would read through my match report and try to coach myself. Or because my dad was my coach, I would call him mm-hmm. and tell him, hey, I did this and this mistake, what do you think? And and that's when I discovered that when I write, it's like therapeutic for me mm-hmm. and I can get a lot of things out and things come out on page that I didn't know I was struggling with. And so I, I had always been writing since I was a teenager. I just never had the idea that some of this might be published. Yeah. <laughs> well, now it's it's published, it's in the know, and, and it's just funny too because you saw at the end of your career – 
kids coming up with gaming and different ways. Yeah. And you're the old school journalist just yeah, writing yeah, away. Yeah, just the old school with the note, you know, notebook <laughs> and a pen, and like That's I have so the pen funny. behind yeah. my ear, <laughs> just jotting something down in a cafe, yes. writing away. I want to ask you how Angie's doing though. It was good to see her out there, like you said, so soon after having a kid. Yeah, looks great. Like how how is she doing? She looks great. She is very happy. She's still planning on coming back. And I have to say, uh, the thing that always annoyed me the most with her, she no matter how much break she had, no matter uh, how big the difference of surface was, how big the difference of conditions were, Angie within three minutes of hitting yeah. the ball already felt it amazingly so and i was the type <laughs> of player who like five days needed to practice three times a day in all different weathers and all different times of the day to get a feeling for it and she just quickly picked it up so that yeah. was amazing and that was the same the only thing i have to say she has to work on her surf because she okay. hit like right. 27 double falls wow. in the row okay. and in the end the people were like gasping <laughs> when she was about to surf that was very uh, funny but ground strokes 100 percent perfect already so just a few calibrations that's it exactly, like just a exactly. couple of hits and she's back well morath andrea pekovic here on tennis channel inside in well uh, i mean we're catching you at a great time the start of the u.s open series what's caught your eye this week as we record this we're going into the weekend with dc los cabos obviously there's clay event in austria and we got canada around the corner so what stood out as we get on that beginning path to the U.S. Open? Well, I think two things on the men's side, Dominic team oh. reaching the finals in <laughs> yeah. Kitzbühel. I'm, I'm almost more relieved than happy yeah. just that he's found. I mean, I think he has found his form. It was just um, something lacking in his mentality, just also a, a, a bit of fear in hitting the ball so, fully yeah. after so when the we wrist get, injury. When we, and you can break this down because yeah. you've come back from injuries yourself. How much of that do you think get after a certain time or is it right away where it's always kind of a mental block that you have to get over? Because the shots, especially the last couple months, we saw the shots were there. Mm. It did feel like from the outside again that the mental hurdle was his biggest challenge. It, it did. Well, and he is coached by a coach that I worked with. So I have a little bit on Intel and he at least for the last three months has been telling me that Dominic was playing incredible in practice and that he's been hitting the ball as hard as ever. But the moment he stepped on court, on the match court, mm -hmm. he would be hesitant mm -hmm. and would have uh, doubts in his mind. And yeah. when you have doubts in your mind or when you're just thinking about what you're doing, you're immediately blocking yourself. Yeah. And I do have to say one thing, all the injury, I had really terrible injuries and surgeries, but they were all sort of knee, hip, lower back thing. The injury that actually ended my career was an elbow thing. And having something on your arm mm -hmm. that you hit the ball with is a completely different mm -hmm. ball game. Because you do feel like, yes, your movement is impaired, but you do feel like if I do my exercises and if I do drills on right. court, I will get slowly, I will get my movement back, right? And you can sort of fake it with exercises, running around cones, running towards balls, stopping in, in a safe environment and then go out on the practice court yeah. and then go out on the match court. With hitting the ball, you can't mm -hmm. fake that in practice. You have to be confident yeah. in your elbow or your wrist and you have to fully hit the ball. And I realized that having an injury on your hitting arm is something completely different and I can see how it 
how it messed with Dummy's head because it did mess with my head. I was somebody who always loved training, hit not so much in the gym, but hitting yeah, the ball, right. playing matches. There was always something I really enjoyed. And I lost my love for the game because I knew I was in pain mm. for at least the first half an hour before the you know yeah, it got warm sure. and the f- pain subsided. So I will say that this is very different than an injury on the knee yeah. or the ankle or something similar. Before we wrap this up, you alluded to it, but are we in the coaching circle now or are we just working with some German players? <laughs> you have to help me pronounce her last name, but you were with Noma Noah um, Akugwe, Akugwe, yes, who made that run yes. to the final of the tournament. It was a, a sensational run. Um, but at the same time, I read some of your quotes where you're like, this process is good that it's slow. It's yes. good that she takes time and makes the steps, the baby steps to get there because she's so young. What are your thoughts on, I guess, her game, her development? What role have you had in, in working with the young player? Well, so I my role is um, the mentor of the German Tennis Federation for exactly that type of player, somebody mm-hmm. who has just arrived on tour, like Noma. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few others. Jule Niemeyer is the la- like the oldest of these players yeah. that is still in my department, so, uh, so I still take care. And I'm sort of like... You know, um, you know that person at dinner <laughs> that always eats the rest of everyone else? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's my role, yeah. kind of. So when somebody doesn't have a coach or is in between coaches, yeah. I swoop in, I help out. Yeah. Um, or if, for example, Eula's coach does a lot of TV in Germany, so when he's working yeah. TV, I help her okay. out. So that's kind yeah. of my role. They sometimes call me to ask for really dumb things like <laughs> tournament scheduling or like, hey, should I take yeah. this electrolyte? Wow. So basically wow. from A to Z, I'm there for everything and Noma is in between coaches right now so that's why since Berlin I've been working a bit closer with her and she has so much potential it is insane and I when I know how much she wanted to win that tournament but when she lost and I really wanted her to win but when she lost I was almost relieved because I could also already smell the German press expectations (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, they were like sharks already like (laughs) just smelling the blood and just waiting for that little piece of meat that you know gets dropped into the ocean and so I was almost relieved that that she has a bit more time to yeah. to develop a few more features in her game yeah. and also in calm and peace without yeah. the pressures of German media losing going crazy because we have possibly right. a new German star. So you're like the handy woman when there's a problem. Yes, exactly. Just yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the topic that came up recently in the news front again was how cold handshakes are. And I did want to bring up a piece of literature okay. that you brought up about the definition of what a really <laughs> cold handshake is. Um, Giselle Doko, I grew up a fan. So, so this story is great. You know, my favorite tennis memory playing her in Tokyo. She went for an air kiss. I went for a hug and you guys ended up almost making out in yeah. front of three fans <laughs> in Tokyo. That was the best. It really is. I think people thought I was exaggerating to make a point on Twitter or X or whatever it's yeah. called now. I really think this is my favorite tennis memory because every time I think of it, it yeah. makes me laugh so yeah. much. Just the confused look on the Japanese, like three people that were in the audience. We played on an outside yeah. court. It had rained. It was similar yeah. like a day to day where it had rained the day before. So they played 10 matches uh-huh. at the same time yeah. at 10 a.m. And uh, my coach just being so also yeah. so confused like what is happening so it yeah. always makes me laugh and it will stay my favorite memory of all time just have to be there i guess <laughs> yeah. that's the rule yeah. i have to say like the most impressive thing i've seen over the course of the last five days is sebastian offner 
fully like that was looking the other guy in the, uh, in the eye, shaking his hand, hugging him like, hey, well done, man. After being up 6'3", up 5'0". How five, long would zero, that stick with you? I mean... I think it would never leave me ever. I think it was this is That's like I don't yeah. know how he's coping. He needs three sports psychologists after that loss. But I had so much respect mm -hmm. for him for just shaking uh, the other guy's hands. Malt, I think it was Alex Maltzan yeah. just shaking his hand, <laughs> tapping his back. I was like, "You yeah. go, boyfriend," because this is <laughs> impressive. <laughs> wow. U.S. men's tennis has had quite the resurgence in recent years, and that doesn't just pertain to the singles game. Austin Krychek became just the 20th American man to reach the number one ranking in doubles after winning Roland Garros with partner Ivan Dodic this past June. And at 33 years old, he still has plenty more winning to do. Krychek joined Inside In ahead of this year's U.S. Open to discuss that milestone, being inducted into the Texas A&M Hall of Fame, and the honor of representing the Stars and Stripes at the Tokyo Olympics. U.S. I mean, you've played a bunch of U.S. Opens. Are you used to the experience now? I know at, at first you see young players, young Americans always say this is, you know, crazy. This is the dream I've always had. And now I'm here. Are sure. you kind of used to the craziness? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, I you know, haven't even counted, to be honest. But, yeah, I started playing juniors here probably in 2005, six, something like that. Uh, so it's been quite a few years in a row in New York. And, uh, yeah, I love it up here. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously the energy is, is a little bit different. It's special uh, being in the city. That, you know, the first couple of days always takes a little bit to adjust, uh, you know, sleeping with some of the noise and, and all that and being, you know, with the traffic and stuff. Yeah. We, we, I live in Texas, so it's a little bit different vibe over there, but, yeah. um, but I love it. It's, it's a great atmosphere and the fans make it really fun. So you going into this tournament, obviously, with the year you've had and everything that you've done and playing with Dotage and such a great partner. Are you going into this feeling the pressure motivation to get the job done? And, you know, I know the title is the main goal, but to get to that number one ranking, are you feeling like it's within grasp? Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, luckily this summer I put myself in a position where, where it isn't within grasp. Um, you know, I think at this stage of our, of our year, we, we feel confident to say that any tournament we go to, we, we want to go there to try to win the tournament. Um, at the same time, I think if you focus on that, uh, it's not going to, it usually doesn't end well. So, you know, we try to focus on, on the process and the little things and try to prepare ourselves to play the best match um, each day and just bring our best level and give ourselves an opportunity to win. But yeah, for sure. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, you know, lie to you and say that we we don't have high goals, and, and yeah. it definitely would be awesome to do it here in New York. You know, he's won a couple majors, has dotage, and and before mm -hmm. he before you guys won this spring, what's something you've learned from a veteran? I know you know you're you're in your you know prime of your career as well, but playing with a veteran, someone older, what have you learned from a, an accomplished doubles champion like him? Yeah, I've learned so much. I mean, Yvonne's uh, such a great guy. He's, he's obviously one of the best players ever. You know, to be playing with him now for almost two years, it's been been pretty cool to, to be able to learn from him on, on the big stage. I mean, what to expect. I mean, some of that stuff, you know, someone can tell you all they want, how it's going to feel playing on, on a center court at a Grand Slam or, or in the year-end finals. But until you kind of experience it yourself, it, it's one of those things you kind of have to go through. Uh, but to lean on Yvonne in those big moments, he's obviously been there before many times. And um, so to kind of, uh, you know, lean on that. And then also his professionalism um, on and off the court, mm -hmm. I think, is rubbed off on our team in a great way. And, and I think I've taken a lot of valuable lessons that hopefully will help me extend my career um, yeah. for, for many years to come. Well, what's something to go a little inside baseball, inside tennis from, for, you know, from an expert's perspective, why do you think you guys gel so well tactically and, and how you play together? Sure. I mean, every partnership's a little different. Um, I think we uh, really see eye to eye on our preparation. Um, you know, not just, 
for matches, but also for for practices, and then how we handle losses. I think is a is a similar fashion. I mean, both pretty professional. Um, and I think we both, when we lose, we both lean on the side of overworking as opposed to kind of um, letting things happen. I, I guess you'd say. But um, yeah, I mean, there's other things. I mean, tactically as well, I think we match pretty well. As Ivan obviously has fantastic returns. Um, you know, I'm left-handed, so obviously lefty-righty is always mm-hmm. a, a benefit to have that combo. Um, but also, I serve well. We both play aggressive styles of games, and and um, you know, it kind of works on on every service. We play aggressive doubles and, and try to take it to the guys we're playing each day. And um, you know, so far we've clicked really well. And I think the good news is with tennis. I mean, yeah. as as Federer always says, there's always a hundred things you can do better. Um, so we're we're each week that we that we play. Um, you know, we're trying to improve little things. And and I think we've got so much room to grow as a team uh, on and off the court. So it's that's the the good news. You played at Texas A&M, had a standout career there, accomplished a lot. Do you think that that experience kind of better equips you than most for dealing with rowdy environments? I mean, France, we know they're, they're not yeah. the most kind there, but I do think that there's something to be said for the college tennis players that know what it's like to play a true road game. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I still tell people all the time uh, that going to college and specifically going to Texas A&M was, was the best decision I've made of my career so far. Uh, those four years there were, were priceless with um, coach Denton and coach McKinley. Uh, preparing me for every situation that I was going to be in uh, in a tennis tournament. They had done it all. Uh, Coach had won, Coach Jen had won uh, two Grand Slams and, and been in the finals of two singles Grand Slams in Australia and been number two in the world. So everything that I wanted to do on a tennis court, they have done. And to get their perspective on the court, which at the time there wasn't on-court coaching in the ATP level, but, yeah. but you can only do that in college. So um, to kind of see from his lens of things uh, while we were playing, I think that was a huge benefit. And then, of course, we were in the Big 12 at that time, but to play at some of these tough environments like University of Texas and Baylor, um, these schools that that really make it tough on on the opposing yeah. team was was fun. I mean, and and to be honest, to this day, I actually kind of like that um, you know atmosphere where where everyone's against you. It's just kind of you and your team, and it makes it difficult, but at the same time, it, it's pretty cool and rewarding when you come through on the winning side. Who gave it, or which school gave it to you the mo- the worst? Was it Texas? No, I would actually say Baylor was, oh, okay. was probably one of the worst. And we had a couple bad ones at, at LSU on the road. They okay. were they had some very rowdy fans that maybe hit the tailgate a little too hard. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was always always fun. College yeah. tennis is one of my favorite four years for sure. Yeah, well, I guess it just means more in the SEC. Um, and then 2018, <laughs> you got inducted, or I shouldn't say that, 2021, you got inducted into the uh, Texas A&M Athletic Hall of Fame. What was that experience like? It has to be chilling to just – you know, know you made a mark on, on an institution like that, and you're one of the people honored at the football game and inducted into a immortality at College Station. Yeah. Yeah, it was really special. I mean, from day one, when I stepped foot on A&M's campus, I, I really felt like I was part of the Aggie family, and, and um, they say that once an Aggie, always an Aggie, and, I, and it's actually, I mean, it's crazy how true that is. I, I still feel super connected to that place, and we try to make it back as much as we can uh, for a football game or two every year, and my parents are still near there, so we try to visit you know them as much as possible as well. But yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It was a little bit surreal, and um, you know it took a while for that to sink in. And I mean, there's just so many yeah. so many great athletes that have been there. Um, but it's cool to play for something bigger than yourself. And it's not just there; it's not just about tennis. You know, I mean the, the football, and it's just such a big picture thing. All the sports. It was pretty cool to be included in that. You know, you turned pro, and everyone's talked about your journey in the doubles game. But there was a lot of time where it was a singles career, and a lot of 
futures and satellite tour events. Mm -hmm. What changed from your mindset? And I think 2018 was when you really started to focus on doubles and then the breakthrough and the rise up the rankings steadily happened. What changed in your mindset to make you want to make that decision of I'm going to be all in on the doubles train? Yeah, it was it was a tough time there a little bit in 2018. I, I dropped off a bit, um, was in the top 100 for a bit in singles and then had a couple couple strange injuries and, and some bad scheduling decisions and, and dropped kind of out of that range where I was in the Grand Slam uh, qualities. So I was going to have to go back through kind of the Challenger Futures grind a little bit. And um, at that time, I lost a little bit of, of love for the game. Um, it was just difficult traveling and, and the finances really weren't weren't um, weren't making sense um, at all. So I was, you know, teetering on, on not playing. And, and um, I've always, I think my skill set's always been suited quite well for doubles um, I was, had success in doubles in college obviously and and um, thought you know I wanted to give it a chance and luckily had some good buddies that I played with that summer uh, tennis Sangreen is one of my best friends and um, we, we quartered the US Open that year and one of my other buddies Jivon um, Nadine Chesin who played at Washington as well yeah. in college played some tournaments and got my ranking back up into the top 50 range and then at that point decided to kind of focus all in on that and, and hopefully make a little bit of a mark on the sport. If I can maybe, you know, make a push to win some of these bigger events and, and get towards the top of the rankings. I thought that would be, um, you know, better for me. Awesome. When you look at your tennis career, you know, I know it's not over yet, but when you look in the rear view, where would you put, you know, representing your country in the Olympics? I, I would imagine it's pretty high on that list that you got to play and we're just one match away from a medal, but still just the experience of putting on the team USA shirt. Yeah, it was, it was something uh, extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, Tennis, to be honest, in tennis, in the tennis world, the Olympics isn't massive. Um, obviously, when you're a young kid, you always want to uh, win a Grand Slam, win Wimbledon, win the US Open, or these big events. And in Olympics, uh, I always thought it was amazing, uh, but I never really thought I would get to play. And then being able to play in Tokyo, it really took on a special meaning for sure, putting the USA stuff on and, and having a whole crew behind you. I mean, a, a huge team, obviously, there were no fans in Tokyo, but to have our whole team behind us, it uh, was one of the better experiences I've ever had. And, and then at the same time, just like I said, at Roland Garros last year, it was probably the, the hardest loss of my career. I would say that one even topped um, the finals of Roland Garros in, in 2022, uh, just because we, you know, lost in the semis. And then you, you kind of try to convince yourself that's okay. You know, we've got another chance in the medal. And then you lose that one again. It was, it was an absolutely brutal loss. And that one, that one sung for a while and took a little bit of a, a couple of weeks to shake off. <laughs> yeah, last year uh, in February, Jenny Brady was in the studio and did the show, and uh, we were going over some of the photos of Team USA tennis. And yeah, it was described by her as obnoxiously American attire. <laughs> well, the 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 polo stuff yeah. is a bit, you know, Fourth of July, and <laughs> yeah. there's only a few events you can kind of pull yeah. it off. the The Nike gear is is awesome, um, you know, and, and just the the experience of being there. I mean, with with all your teammates, Jenny's. Uh, she's one of my one of my good friends as well on the tour. She's she's awesome. It's so glad to see her back, yeah. healthy now and playing again. But um, yeah, it really was a special experience, and and mm -hmm. hopefully I, I get the chance to represent um, again uh, next year. We'll, yeah. we'll see. So you know, the last thing to follow up on: what do you think the keys to success are at the U.S. Open? And just to kind of expand on that, it doesn't seem like there's much left in your career to do other than kind of go on a nice run in New York. Yeah, I mean it's definitely one of the things that's top of my list. I mean, of course. We like to try to win as many Grand Slams as we can. I've only I've only done that once, so to be able to to go deep here would be really special in the U.S. I mean, I've got quite a bit of family that comes out, and hopefully my wife can can be here as well. And so it's pretty cool to have that. I mean, I think one of the one of the bigger keys is to be able to balance all of that. Um, 
obviously there's a lot of energy uh, with the crowd and, and being in the city that can get a little bit draining sometimes if, if you're, if you're not careful, um, you know, kind of taking some rest as well. And when you're here, it's a long tournament, a lot of matches that you have to play well back to back. And, and um, so, yeah, you just kind of have to take it match by match opponent by opponent and, and try to play your best strategy on the day and, and just bring the best level you can and hopefully give yourself a chance to, to win the last point. That's all you can do. So it's the perfect way to look at it. Uh, and just the, the bonuses, do you have a bottle of bourbon? I know you're a bourbon drinker lined up for a few wins. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I've got, yeah, <laughs> okay. we've definitely got another bottle of, uh, of old Forrester birthday waiting for uh, us at home. So <laughs> it's a lot of pressure cause that's a lot riding yeah. on it. Next up, we hear from a familiar face on this podcast. Shelby Rogers, the American returned to inside in to recap a whirlwind 2023, which featured a match on Wimbledon center court in front of British royalty and tennis royalty in the form of Roger Federer. Rogers also explains the euphoria of defeating Ash Barty at the U S open, how Coco golf is built to handle success and what the WTA locker room is really like. Let's listen to Shelby Rogers now on the best of inside in. So you play Wimbledon and you're all excited center court, you know, you're playing the defending champs. You're going to get those honors, but what was, was it more shocking when Roger came out and it was just like everyone stopped or there's a prince? It, that's not the normal center court experience, even for the defending champ. Definitely not. <laughs> I actually tore my ab the Thursday before Wimbledon. Oof. And so I took a couple days. I hadn't seen the draw yet, not serving. And then I saw the draw and I was like, okay, I need to be like Wolverine and, <laughs> you know, heal up. Yeah. The ab felt pretty good during the match. I thought I served actually really well there in the first set. Yeah. And it was funny because when I saw the draw, I was like, oh, this is kind of a dream come true. I've never played on center court at Wimbledon. This is going to be a lot of fun. And the morning of the match, they came in to tell us about the schedule of, you know, when we would go down to enter center court and everything. And um, there had been a rain delay. So not only is everyone on site watching our match, but she's telling me that Roger Federer is going to be honored, you know, before our match. And yeah. everybody's, you saw the video, everybody yeah. stood mm -hmm. like a standing ovation yeah. for 10 minutes or something. So we were a bit delayed for that. And then she told me the princess was going to be there. And I was like, okay, well, I can't play this match. <laughs> I don't know was, what I'm supposed to do. It was like a movie scene, like the way they shot it. And that's a good point. Nobody else was playing with the rain. So you guys are literally the only thing essentially going on. And yeah, Roger just shows up with the princess. It's like a scene out of a movie, but you did bury the lead a little bit. Like you took Rebecca into the three sets. So even with the torn ab, you were out there and you know, unfortunately that's part of it. She's a great player. You were a little hampered, but it was a competitive match at least. It was no, I'm super proud of, you know, the way I, I at least fought and put a lot of effort into it. Um, she definitely loosened up. You know, she was very nervous starting the match as mm -hmm. expected. That's fine. I think we both were. Um, but it was a very cool experience. I just told myself before going on court, soak it all in. Mm -hmm. You know, no matter how you're feeling, you're nervous, try to enjoy this moment any way you can, winning or losing, whatever yeah. it is. Like, make sure you take a second to look around, mm -hmm. enjoy the crowd, enjoy the noise. We could hear the rain <laughs> pouring down on the roof. Yeah. I mean, just the contrast of, like, loud rain, loud cheers, and then just absolute silence during the points. All you could hear was the ball being struck. It was, it was pretty incredible. The nerves is a good point, too, because, you know, you can be on the other side of that and you can, you know, use that to your advantage. When you play a top player who's battling against the nerves and having all this pressure, you were able to make that a competitive match. And I, I kind of segue backwards into what we talked about. 
That U.S. Open match against Ash Barty, and I don't know, you realize you're the answer to a trivia question. The last person ever beat Ash Barty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, but that match was a moment where, you know, you rise up, you beat her, you get that, that big win over her in the U.S. Open. What was different about that match? Because you had been competitive with her in the past, and you had been competitive with top players before. But what went right and what was different about that match that ultimately led you to prevail? I mean, one of the main variables there is the crowd. <laughs> I was an American playing in Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is the loudest court in the world. It was absolutely deafening. And I just feel like I had so much energy from them when I started coming back in the in the third set there, you know, down a double yeah. break and just, I mean, doing something unbelievable. But I also feel like that night was super humid. The balls were incredibly slow. We couldn't do anything with the ball. Mm -hmm. I mean, we couldn't hit a winner. We couldn't set up the points the way we wanted to I actually started moonballing some like I mm -hmm. changed up the height I changed up the pace started playing a way that I usually wouldn't um kind of a Hail Mary if you will <laughs> you know because yeah. I wasn't feeling the ball like I wanted to so just trying to problem solve and that's the beautiful thing about tennis yeah. there's a million ways to hit a tennis ball and win a point and win a match and so it's just what's going to work on that day I thought that uh, that's a good point. Also, the fact that it wasn't a blowout match. Like, and it wasn't a match where she went away in the end. It was tight all the way to that third set breaker where it was just back and forth. Um, so was that just complete euphoria when the match was over? Did you even know, I guess, could you raise your arms is a better way to put it? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the racket went flying, arms went in the air. I just remember, I think it was, was it? Six five, I was serving, I believe. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, if you've ever made a first serve in your life, this is the <laughs> one to make, you know, just yeah. go big wide right now. Yeah. Just go for broke. And uh, yeah, it worked, celebrated. Yeah. I mean, the again, the noise was deafening, but it was really cool to be there as an American in Arthur Ashe Stadium. It's definitely a moment that I'll never forget. How did the phone come out? Was that just planned or did it just happenstance? The phone celebration where we were, I don't know if it was a FaceTime or a selfie, but it, it was, was just a, nice a touch. video. I just <laughs> wanted to remember that moment. Yeah. I mean, I've never played in a, a crowd like that before. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of something for me. I think I posted it after, but every now and then I'll go yeah. back. I'll, I'll see the video pop up or, you know how your iPhone will yeah. remind you of like, remember <laughs> this day. So yeah. those are kind of fun memories. It's almost like, and I know you're, uh, uh, I believe a, a whoop sponsored athlete too. It's like, Hey, you're, you're a little too loud right now. Like calm down. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sorry. I'm winning the U S open match right now. And, and that match in particular, I feel like it was the culmination of a lot of you know, hard work, like your year and your last couple of years. Because the first time we chatted, you were coming back from injury. It was a slow build. Rome is never built in a day for a tennis player. I think on the outside, we see these big wins, but it was right like a two year plus journey to get to that level where you could beat a great player. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for any athlete, right? It's, you always hear the phrase, trust the process. And that's beyond mm -hmm. true for anyone. You might get a couple good wins. You <laughs> might have a bad string of losses but you know that can always turn around in in one day in one week so you yeah. just got to keep your head down trust the process enjoy the journey you know all those mm -hmm. cliche yeah, sayings sure. but they're true yeah, I mean yeah. the memories that we make along the way are really what it's all about and why we love this sport and why we love being on tour you had a lot of people that were happy to see that win. I think it has a lot to do with your reputation. Is this like Southern Belle on the tennis tour? <laughs> you know, most, I mean, maybe, maybe one, there's only one incident I can think of where maybe that wasn't the case, which we can get to <laughs> in a second. But no, I think that's part of it. I mean, there is, you're kind of in that maybe I'd say like on Shabor territory where even if you're not friends with everyone, everyone's just like, oh, there's Shelby, like we get along. I feel like I'm friends <laughs> yeah. with most people. Yeah. yeah. Like for me, 
if I'm not getting along and having fun with people in the locker room, like it's just a really miserable week. You know, right. I have to enjoy myself. I see these girls every week and a lot of them are really, most of them are really great people. Like yeah. I enjoy being around these girls and seeing them all the time. And I enjoy learning about them. And, um, I'm a psychology mm. major. So mm-hmm. I just, I just have an interest in people and yeah. I just love, you know, connecting and having relationships and great conversations. All of that's really fun for me, especially, I mean, even if we have to go up against each other and compete, it's okay to be friends too, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Tennis is a different sport and it's, it's unique in the sense that you're sharing a locker room and, you know, you know, these girls, you travel with them, you're going to see them around. So no one would really want to get too out of pocket. You also warm up together. Like, could you imagine the lightning and Panthers warming up together? Probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it is very unique. We know a lot about each other. We share yeah. a lot of emotions and we walk around, you know, the player lounge and the tournaments. You have your last loss kind of plastered on your forehead, your rankings <laughs> kind of there for everyone to know. And there's not many secrets for sure, right. but you just, it, it helps you to be comfortable with yourself and comfortable with what you're doing, I think. And um, yeah, you just own it and enjoy it. And in that locker room, being a a regular member of it for so long, I get the sense, too, that you don't – I mean, there's great players. There's Hall of Fame players on both tours. But to you, it's just the peer. Like, it's just someone you see around the locker room, not what us or the fans of the media even see. Yeah, I think so. And I wouldn't really consider myself someone that gets, like, starstruck – um, even, you know, with the ATP players mm-hmm. or other athletes or just because I've been fortunate enough to get to know a lot of athletes mm-hmm. or, um, very successful people at what they do and everybody's just, yeah, you know, more or less normal. Like they just happen to be good at what they do and they've worked really hard and they, um, are very talented at something. So it's just fun for me to get to know people and how they get to where they are. Is there ever a starstruck, like non-tennis player, maybe someone at a match? I guess maybe the princess or at the U.S. Open, anybody in the entertainment industry that would kind of start make you starstruck a little bit. No, honestly, the <laughs> toughest moment for me was the first time I encountered Roger Federer. Like he's the <laughs> only time I've ever yeah. just been like, oh my goodness, <laughs> and that that was quite a few years yeah. ago. You know, one of my first few years on tour. But uh, yeah, he would be kind of the only one. Well, it's uh, you know, and getting up there with anything is you know you don't have your pioneer your your legends that you looked up to aren't playing unfortunately anymore so that's part of it and as great as these generations are you're always going to be starstruck at the people that you idolize as a kid that's just how it is these american tennis generations though and and i bring it back to that because on the women's side you're part of a class of very successful ladies that followed another class of americans and now you have the coco golf class coming up so it seems like it, it seems good in a way because in a very tennis and American tennis way, everyone's kind of rooting and pushing each other further and getting better as a result. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an honor to be a part of that group to even be mentioned with those other names. Um, because for me growing up, I did look up to the other American women, you know, the Jennifer Capriotis. <laughs> and so I think it's important for us to kind of do the same thing for the next generation. I mm-hmm. think each generation sort of wants to, to keep pushing the bar and keep inspiring the next one. Yeah, and you look at someone like Coco win. it's like, I mean, we knew this was going to happen. There's not a lot of weaknesses there. And at 19, I mean, especially for your perspective, it's like, wow, 19, this is a pretty high-level, complete player. Oh, it's awesome. And to see how she's yeah. just grown and matured as a person as well off the court, like not only her tennis game, it's just there's so much room for improvement there. But her as a person is just really inspiring too because mm-hmm. she really – values being a great person and Mm -hmm. has great morals and just you know she has a very charismatic personality and she seems to be handling everything really well 
We wrap up the best of Tennis Channel Inside In with Chris Eubanks, who had the season of his dreams in 2023. Eubanks looks back at his emotional breakthrough at the Miami Open, how life changed after beating Sitsipas at Wimbledon, and what it was like to have a front row seat watching the rise of his close friend Ben Shelton. And he also explains how special it was to witness Coco Goff's first major triumph. Here's Chris Eubanks closing out 2023 in style on the best of Tennis Channel Inside In. We proved it this year, and it really did start to come together on a national stage in Miami. And I have to ask you, a uh, weirder question because of the player. I don't think many people would understand this, but have you ever had an emotional moment in tennis like the Barrera match? No, never, that, never. Yeah, because yeah, never. And explain to me why it wasn't just beating who you beat. It was the circumstances of the match and what that match meant for your ranking and that milestone. Yeah, so funny enough, I didn't know that match was the top 100 match. I had been keeping track of being top 100 in the weeks before, and I lost first round in Monterey. I believe I was one match, my first, I was a first round win away from mm-hmm. being top 100 in Monterey. Then I got a, uh, I got into Acapulco. Where I played Philly Lopez and um, didn't play well there, lost mm-hmm. in straight sets. And But I knew sitting at 102, any of those yeah. matches could have boosted me inside the top 100. But I also knew that in Indian Wells, I had to quali in and win around. I had a lot of points to defend. Yeah. And I was in qualies of Indian Wells this year, hoping I, w- I would get a major wild card. I didn't get it, so I was in qualies. Fell to Maximilian Martyrer. And uh, ironically enough, Coco was at that match as well. And I told her afterwards, I said, you know, the past two weeks have been pretty bad, but this I felt more like myself. I still mm. lost in three. But I felt more like myself on the court, and I think, like, I'm starting to find my form. And even she said the same thing. She goes, yeah, like, you were playing well, you know, just a few points here. That didn't go your way. And so I I took some confidence from that. But after that, I decided going into Miami, I would no longer look at the live rankings. (laughs) And so I kind of went into Miami saying, all right, no longer checking the live rankings. I know I'm about to drop a decent amount of points from losing first round of Indian Wells, but I think I dropped around 120. I said, I'm just going to go out here, I'm going to play tennis, and we're just going to see what happens. And so kind of progressing from qualities to my first round against Kutla to, um, I believe, the Barrera match. No, the uh, Chorich was second round, Barrera was the third round. Yeah, It was more so the circumstances. I had been playing so well, I was up a set and a break. I was playing some of the best tennis I probably played in all of Miami. Yeah. And I had one loose service game in which I got broken back, and Barrera's confidence started to grow. And we get into the tiebreaker. I like my chance still, you know, after being up a set and a break, and he broke back, and we get into the tiebreaker. And we had had a couple rain delays, and you can kind of feel that rain was coming in Miami. Wind was starting to pick up, and it was super late in the evening already. Uh I think we maybe had already had one or two rain delays, and then we get to the tiebreaker, and I get down 5-2. Rain starts to fall. We have to go into the locker room. I'm down 5-2. And at this point, my mind is already kind of focusing on the third set. I'm yeah. like, 5-2, Barrera's serving as <laughs> yeah. well. Barrera's a really good serve. So I'm like, ah, man, this might be tough. And we go into the locker room. I actually see Francis Tiafo, who's in the middle of a pretty tough match himself. Um, and I kind of asked him, hey, how's your match going? He just brushed it off. He said, let's not talk about it. He goes, what's up with you? And I said uh. that, um, you know, I'm down. I'm up a set. I was cruising. Now I'm down 5-2, Barrera's serving. You know, I'm probably just going to, you know, Focus my energy more so on the third. And Francis kind of said, no, like, 5-2 and a breaker, you can come back from that. Like, you can come, you can win this when you go back on court. You don't have to wait until for, uh, wait for a third set. So, I'm listening to him. I'm kind of yeah. like, yeah, okay, you're, yeah, I don't, I don't make as many returns as you typically, so you wouldn't really understand. So, we get on court. We go back on the court. It's, it's maybe all of eight people there. It's late. It's probably close to midnight. We, they drive the court. Just did a phenomenal job there. And I remember first point. Rare misses his first serve, and I said, he's not expecting me to try to crank a second serve after a rain to lay down. I'm going to step yeah. around, find a forehand. 
I do it, step around, find a forehand, I miss it wide by maybe a couple inches. It just barely mistimed mm-hmm. it, and I'm thinking, oh, six two down, I'm mm-hmm. definitely done. I get a favorable let court on one point. I win the two points on my serve, and I make a good return, and he misses the first ball at 6-5 that uh, makes it 6-all. And then I'm changing sides, and I'm going, uh-oh, I might be able to win this match now. And so I come back. I end up winning that match either 8-6 or 9-7, can't remember, and was just stunned. Couldn't believe it. My yeah. hands went above my head. I'm looking at my coach like, what just happened? I can't believe I won that match. And yeah. then I shake Barrera's hand. I shake the umpire's hand go to the bench, and my coach yells over to me. He goes, no, actually, I remember I put my racket in my bag, and I went over to him, and I gave him a hug immediately. And then he he was look, had his phone in his yeah. hand, and he goes, just so you know, that was a match for top 100. Wow. And that's when it all – that's when the emotion came out, just because it was like, wow, these past three, four weeks, I've been one match away, couldn't get it, was kind of overthinking it, and then for it to happen in such dramatic fashion was, was a, a, a feeling on the tennis court that I've never felt before. Honestly, don't know if I'll ever feel again. Just the, the emotion just came mm-hmm. out, and I, I couldn't control it. How much did everything change after that Sotsipas match? From, like, phone to people hitting you up to um, just... Because that was the one. That was the one. I mean, we're going to look at that one and saying that you took out one of the very best players in the game and had to battle to do it. To stay yeah. in that match after how he played the first set yeah, was, was pretty getting, great. I was, I was getting thoroughly outplayed in that match. Um, yeah, so, it, it, funny enough, it's the, the Sotsipas match was... Obviously special. Mm-hmm. It was it was still special. People will ask me, you know, you know, what was your, your best match that you played? You know, at Wimbledon, I still think the Nori match was really big for yeah. me because Nori was the number one Brit and he had semifinal at Wimbledon. And you were on the main and you were on one of the main courts yeah, too, which court is another one. part of it too. Is that you're going from outer courts to main courts, yeah. maybe out again? Like, yeah. it's not a great adjustment to have to make all the time. Yeah, it's not. It's not. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I think getting through that Nori match, playing the number one Brit at Wimbledon in a packed court one, like. Mm-hmm. That to me was was an experience, you know. I and Nori was the when I was in school. Nori was the man. Like Nori was <laughs> the guy in college tennis. Yeah, like we, yeah, yeah my yeah. freshman year, obviously Noah Rubin um, came in and kind of lit, you know, college tennis up. But I think even maybe after that, my sophomore junior, junior year, Nori was <laughs> he was like the guy. He like played was doing well in pro events. He was qualifying in mm-hmm. and final and challengers, and then coming back and playing dual <laughs> matches. And at that time. Now we're seeing more college guys doing yeah. well on, uh, in pro tournaments consistently. But at that time, it was kind of like, what is this? No, why is he even in school? Like, my yeah, goodness, this here. guy is so good, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So to, to be able to kind of to win that match, I think was the big, was, you know, yeah. I would argue bigger. But, yeah, the Sissy Pops match was certainly a, it was a fun atmosphere. Uh, one thing I, I will never forget about the Sissy Pops match is you're, you're asking how much things changed. I have a really funny story. Yeah. So they take our, they escort us from um, the uh, the meeting point. We go to what court was it? Court two, maybe three, something like that. We go yeah. to our court, and you have to kind of walk through the grounds. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. the security is escorting us. We're walking through the grounds. It's not that you know right. many people noticing it, but it's just people's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's Sissy Pop. So oh, that that's uh, Eubanks. When we when I finished the match, I packed I signed a bunch of autographs. I put my rackets in my bag. I walked up the same way that we had come, and you go out of the side. You have to go up these steps, and then you end up in a side mm-hmm. door, the side of the the stadium. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's a little small stadium. The moment security opened the door, I've never in my life seen that many people almost like mobbing to try to get at me. That was <laughs> when I. It was literally. Yeah. It, it, it sounds funny and it sounds dramatic, but it's like when the doors open from security, I saw so many people. <laughs> And I said, oh, wow. And they looked at me. Security said, are you ready? I was like, yeah. And they grabbed, one of them grabbed one of my arms. The other one kind of like 
wow. pushed me along, and it was literally just um, just running through people. And I'm sitting here, and I go, what do these people want? Like, what is going on? Like, I've never seen anything like this. I walked on the court. Yeah. It was fine. You know, a few autographs, and people yeah. just want to – we go on court, we play the match. I come off, time now, yeah. and it's literally like – Doors open, I freeze, they go, you ready? And they just grab my right arm, and we just bear, just yeah. boom through people. And that was when I realized, oh, I think things are a lot different now. I mean, you probably are the least surprised with what we've seen from Ben Shelton, right, from his year. Yeah. U.S. Open was a coming out party, but something that we all were kind of figuring would happen eventually. Maybe not so soon, but... I mean, he's captivating tennis. You have to say that. Yeah, and he's that, that's the thing that has been really, really cool to see. Um, it's not just the tennis. The tennis part, it was, it was very obvious. And this is when I think his run in Australia kind of solidified what I had thought about Ben because we had played, and again, I hadn't had that much experience at mm -hmm. tour level, so we're primarily playing in challengers, and, you know, he goes 15 matches in mm -hmm. a row, wins three consecutive titles in the challengers, and – you're kind of like, man, like, I, I know I've played big servers before and I've played good tennis players before, but Ben's level is just really high right now. Like, it's really high. <laughs> and I'm kind of, I, I know how good he's going to be. I think it was when he kind of made that run in Australia that yeah. it solidified how good he already was. Yeah. And I think that was the the biggest thing for me was seeing that run. And he had to save a match point in the first round. Like, that mm -hmm. it, that could have changed a lot of things if he doesn't save that match point against Xi Jinping. But... When he made that run in Australia, it kind of made me feel like, okay, I knew I wasn't bugging. Like, I knew, like, <laughs> yeah. the level that he was showing over the past two or three months was another level. So it was really, really cool to see that on the tennis side. He had a bit of, a obviously, a slump in between there, um, unable to win consecutive tour-level matches. But then I played him in Cincinnati. And when I played him in Cincy, I felt like that was the best that he had played in our matchups. Um, I felt like his serve was a lot more difficult to return in those conditions than Cincy. Yeah. And it just made me feel like, all right, he seems – and we, funny enough, we were practicing together when we found out we played each other. Yeah. So we had gotten to Cincy. We said, hey, you want to practice? Yeah, well, okay, we practice. We're finishing up practice. I think I'm hitting serves. He's sitting down uh, just getting some water uh, before he goes and does some returns. And I see his mom come up to the side of the fence, and she's just kind of looking at her phone. And it's just kind of, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And then Brian, his dad, comes over to his mom, and they're huddled over the phone. And I'm just – and um, one of the USCA and the conditioning coaches, Rashard Langford, was over there with them. So it was like a little huddle. Yeah. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And Ben and I are sitting there. My coach is sitting there. And we're just kind of like not really paying him any attention. <laughs> and I can just hear Brian go, no way. And he turns around. He goes, you guys want to guess who you play? So Ben and I were also playing doubles yeah, in Cincy. Yeah. So I'm thinking he's talking about the doubles draw. So yeah. I go, oh, the number one team in the world. Like, he goes, no, singles. Yeah. And I go, no, there's no way. He goes, you guys play each other. So we're sitting there, and even in, yeah, it just kind of went funny. like, wow, you got to be kidding me. So we kind of um, – yeah. I think we continue practice for a little bit. There's no real secrets between us, so it's like right. there's no point in hiding. Um, we practice for a little bit. Yeah. But even in, in, even in the practice before I found out that we played each other, I was like – He's, he's varying up his spins and his speeds and his locations a lot more than he ever has. Mm -hmm. Before, it's kind of like boom on the first serve, and maybe you use the slider yeah. a decent bit, but the kick would kind of be the second. Right. He was mixing in kick first serves. He mm -hmm. was missing in cut body second serves. He was missing in big second serves. He yeah. was just so much variety, and it just made me feel like, man, he's really he's, – He's tough. Like he's he's continuing to add tools to his game. Yeah. So then I um I lost to him in three. He ended up losing the city about six and six. But 
I think in almost all of his service games, he's held really comfortably. Mm -hmm. Like, he just, it wasn't his serve that was the problem why he lost that match. And I was just like, he's playing really, really well. And when I saw him kind of going to New York and I saw that run he had, I was like, all right, it was another, it was like another one. Like, okay, I knew last week he was playing at another level. Like, I knew something was different. So it just kind of reinforced what I already knew about Ben. And to see the the notoriety and the the, the fame and everything that he's kind of gotten as a result of it. I personally don't think he could have happened to a better person. I think he's an incredible kid. He's so talented. And um, at the end of the day, to see kind of the world finding out who Ben Shelton is, has been really cool because I feel like I've been right there kind of a little, maybe not from the beginning, but, you know, the beginning of his professional career. And it's been really, really cool and really rewarding for me to be able to watch him progress the way way that he has. To also follow that up at the U.S. Open, win the title, keep riding that wave, uh, show improvements. We talked about rally tolerance and little differences in his game that he's added. And also, you know, that whole run and, and bringing that out of Novak. I think we're in the same boat. It was great to see. And it shows you the respect that they have for each other. Novak is going to that level to beat Ben Shelton. Yeah. It's uh, very it's very special to see. And then also just the last thing, I mean, Coco winning the U.S. Open. Someone that's helped you instrumentally in your career, uh, you're going to have to probably get to a Grand Slam level to have a one-up on her. <laughs> yeah, so I know. Be tough now. I know. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. But uh, to, to be able to sit there and to be able to sit there and, and have a kind of a front yeah. row view of her progression, um, really, I mean, I, I've known her since she was about five or six, but uh-huh. to be able to start off her pro career from about 14 and, and to be as close with her as I have been for these past few years yeah. and to see and to know all the hard work that it's taken to get to this point mm-hmm. to all of the, you know, the outside yeah. noise that's kind of been there, people questioning, you know, her forehand, people questioning, you know, what, what she needs to do with her team and just to see her kind of yeah. block out the noise as best as she can or as best as she could, and to go through and have that summer that she had and culminating with the U.S. Open. I also, too, think it's really, really interesting that Coco's spectacular U.S. Open run came the year after Serena retired because I remember last year at the U.S. Open, Serena and I played on opposite days, which mm-hmm. kind of worked against me because I couldn't stay around and watch her play right. because she's playing the night match in Queens. Mm-hmm. I'm in the city. I have to play the next day. I can't afford to be there at until 9 or 10 p.m. and then yeah. going home and having dinner. So... Um, I didn't get a chance to watch her, but I could watch it on TV and I could see the excitement that was surrounding her matches. As Coco began to progress later in the tournament, I was like, yeah, granted, it's not Serena level because it was, you know, the GOAT's last run. But to see the like New York and to see the world kind of rally around her, to see so many celebrities, I got to see Spike Lee sitting courtside. (laughs) I saw, you know, Adele and Rich Paul, like all of these people sitting courtside and people going to watch Coco golf. I'm like... Man, I know that little girl. Like I, I like like that's like my little sister. Like and to see so many people really rather r- rally around it was so cool. And outside of my match with Barrera, I think that might have been the only wow. time that I've I actually cried a little wow. bit. It was watching her win it wasn't the real emotional part. It was watching her hug her dad at the end yeah. that really got me. And you could see, and I know Corey and Coco so well. I know what. You know, I have an idea of what they've kind of been through to get to that point. So to see them have that embrace, and I'm sitting in front of the TV, and I can't believe it. And when she fall, runs into his arms and they hug each other, I said, oh, man, and it started coming out. So I, I sent her a message. I was like, listen, I don't usually cry like that. I was like, you and, you and your dad made me cry. Like, that was a really, really cool moment for me to see. Thank you for listening to the best of Tennis Channel Inside In. And once again, a tremendous thank you to every one of our guests that appeared on the podcast in 2023. Without their willingness to converse and share their knowledge of tennis, this show simply would not be possible. 
The podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, and iHeart. If you search Tennis Channel Inside In, the podcast will appear and you can subscribe, leave a rating, and leave a review. When you subscribe, every episode downloads automatically so that you can rest assured knowing that each Thursday, a new episode of Inside In will arrive comfortably on your listening device. Thank you to everyone for supporting this show in 2023, and we have many, many more exciting podcast episodes in store for 2024. For all our guests and all the hardworking people at Tennis Channel, my name is Mitch Michaels saying thank you for listening and have a happy and healthy new year.